Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 40, all the way through 16, verse 8. You can find it in your bulletin, and please follow along as it's being read aloud. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they had said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thank you for that reading. Uh, I see a lot of visitors here, and uh, I'm sure you're here uh, not not to uh, hear me preach, but you're here to see some baptisms. And so uh, I, I do have to preach, though. That is my job. <laughs> I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to keep this sermon short. And you know, the challenge for the for a pastor on preaching on the resurrection is it's so. Uh, it's so rich, and there's so much that you want to say and so much that you can say. Uh, so I'm going to try very hard to really get to the point of what we're here celebrating on Easter Sunday. Uh, but before we do, let's uh, uh, bow for a moment of prayer and really ask the Lord to use this time to uh, speak to us through his word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself so powerfully first. Um, well, perhaps uh, climactically in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and now in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that comes so much power. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to speak to us. Uh, all of us, we struggle with so many different things, uh, so many different sin even in our own lives. Uh, so many of us struggle with uh, loving people, loving our family, loving our spouses, loving our children. Uh, but that's, that's why we need you, and we need your power. 
and we need you to change our hearts. And so we pray that you would do this at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm part of a, a group of pastors, and uh, we've been meeting together. Actually, we've only had one meeting, but uh, the reason for a meeting is we're talking about preaching. And we're talking about specifically about preaching in an urban context. And I think a lot of pastors are starting to feel, you know, it's, it's, it's starting to feel a little bit difficult to preach because uh, people seem so distracted. Uh, people are so connected all the time. And there are so many voices that you're competing with that, uh, you know, honestly, right, I see it from up here, right? It's hard to pay attention sometimes. <laughs> and so we've been, you know, we've been talking about preaching and how do we as pastors communicate the message of the gospel in a way that uh, people remember, in a way that can be very impactful. And so one of the books that we are reading, it's not a Christian book, it's actually a secular book, but it's a book called Made to Stick. And basically what this book is trying to do is it's trying to analyze what kind of stories and what kind of ideas stick to people. Uh, what kind of stories do people remember and find worth sharing? What kind of stories are actually the kind of stories that make people change? And as I was reading this book, it's, it's so interesting because I find that a lot of the characteristics that these authors mention about stories that stick, you actually find here in the resurrection narrative. For example, they say, you know, the kinds of stories that stick are stories that are, are unexpected or stories that connect to the emotion. And certainly you have that in the resurrection. And you can even see that reaction here uh, with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, because they themselves are astonished and they're afraid after they see the risen Lord. And you have the unexpectedness of this empty tomb. And Mark's gospel ends in a very abrupt way. And it ends with him saying, they fled, right? And they were afraid. But if a story is unexpected, and if a story can connect to the emotion, but if the story is not true, then it doesn't matter how good of a story it is because uh, it's not going to have the power to effect any change within us. It's not going to cause us to cast down our paradigms. It's not going to cause us to reorient and to reshape our lives around this very story. And so therefore, another important quality that a good story must have in order to stick is credibility. People have to believe that it's true. It has to be something that you believe actually happened, that you believe is real, and only then will you be willing to reorient your lives around this story. That's what I want to focus on today uh, for the first part of this message is that issue of credibility. Because you see, I think modern people, if you talk to any of your coworkers, if you talk to anybody who is, uh, you know, even a lot of Christians, I would say, I think a lot of people assume that Jesus' resurrection, it's, it's a nice story, it's, but it's a myth. Uh, it's a nice story, but it's, it's a legend and somebody probably made it up. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will find the story inspiring and they'll say, yeah, it's a great story of how good ultimately trumps over evil. But because we live in a world where we have this scientific worldview that doesn't allow us to account for the supernatural, believing in something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ simply just doesn't fit into our paradigm. It doesn't fit into our model of how we see and understand life. 
And the thing is, what we do is we say, well, we're obviously smarter than the people in the ancient world, and they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, uh, but we're, we're more skeptical, are we, aren't we? Uh, we're smarter. Uh, they only believed in the resurrection because they were more gullible. But as you study the context of the ancient world, and this is what Bible scholars and historians are looking at as they study this, you soon begin to discover, you know, the people who believed in the resurrection back then, like Jewish people, like uh, Greeks and Gentiles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't fit into their paradigm either. They would have had a hard time believing in something like this just as much as modern people do. And they certainly wouldn't have reoriented their lives around something like the resurrection of Jesus unless they too believed that it was true. See, if you think about the narrative of Jesus' resurrection, it is probably one of the, if not the most important stories told in the history of the world. It has changed so many things. It has changed the lives of countless number of individuals. It has changed families. It has changed cultures. It has changed societies. And think about people in the early church, even the examples that we know from the Bible. What did Jewish people care about in the ancient world? Well, they cared about their land. They cared about their nation, the nation of Israel. But then all of a sudden, after the story of the resurrection of Jesus, they don't care about those things anymore. You have somebody like the Apostle Paul. Paul, in his former life, was named Saul, and he was a great persecutor of the church. And he would hunt down and kill Christians. And all of a sudden, he becomes the greatest Christian missionary to the Gentile nations, and he brings the gospel to the non-Jewish world, and you say, what accounts for such a drastic change? It's got to be the resurrection. He believed in it. You know, in the uh, ancient world, uh, plagues and plague and disease would uh, ravish people and the sick. And did you know that during those times, it was Christians who stayed back to care for the sick, even if it meant their own peril. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection changed them. You see, this is a story that has a power to uh, not make us just feel good, but it has the power to give us a hope that surpasses all other hopes to actually shatter our paradigms in the very way in which we understand and view the world and to reorient ourselves and to build our lives around this story. So today I just want to ask two simple questions, and it's basically this. Why did people believe in the resurrection? And second, what does it mean? Why did people believe in the resurrection? You know, nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead, and if you look in our passage, Mark, he ends his gospel on a note of shock with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. They're fleeing from the tomb because they're trembling and they're astonished. And when they came to the tomb, they come to do what? They come to anoint Jesus' body. And that actually tells you they expected Jesus' body to be there. And when they get there, they see the stone. It's rolled away. They see this young man dressed in a white robe. And this young man dressed in a white robe tells them, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, he has risen. And they are shocked. Not only are they shocked, but they are afraid. 
they didn't expect this tomb to be empty. They didn't expect this Jesus to be risen from the dead. You know, if you read uh, some of the other gospel accounts, they give a little bit more detail. For example, in Luke 24, you have this. You have two men, and they're walking along on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about what happened to Jesus and how he died, how he was crucified. And they say this, you know, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. And so you see by that statement, even there, uh, after Jesus died, their expectation is not, oh, we hope that Jesus rises from the dead, but their hopes are dashed. And they're thinking, we put all of our hope into this man, this Jesus, and we thought he was going to lead this great movement. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he would redeem Israel. Oh, but he died, so he must not have been the Messiah. See, Jesus wasn't the only one who claimed to be the Messiah. Other people claimed to be the Messiah. And when that person died, the movement died with that person. And they couldn't even imagine that the Messiah would rise from the dead because they didn't even expect the Messiah to die in the first place. And even when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, encounters them and appears to his disciples, they're not like, oh, you're here, finally, praise the Lord. But they couldn't believe it. They reacted in the very similar way that Mary and Mary reacted. They were startled because this was such an unexpected thing. So you ask yourself, well then, if they didn't expect it, if it didn't fit into their paradigms, why did they believe it? Why did they believe the resurrection? Why did they believe it to be true? And if you read the ending of Mark, you probably won't notice this little detail, but Mary and Mary, they're actually mentioned a couple times. They're mentioned three times. Mark mentions them when Jesus is crucified. Mark mentions them when Jesus is buried. And Mark mentions them when they are at the empty tomb. And you ask yourself, why? Why does Mark mention them so many times? And the answer is this. Because he wants people to know that they were witnesses. That they were witnesses to the fact that Jesus died. They were witnesses to the fact that Jesus was buried. And they are witness to the witnesses to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. I read this book in seminary uh, by Richard Balcom, and basically he says this, you know, whenever uh, any of the New Testament writers, whenever they mention a specific name, uh, it's there for a reason. It's there to basically corroborate uh, the story that's being told. You know, in our day and age, we have things like DNA and we have forensic evidence, uh, but in the ancient world, how do you corroborate a story? How do you tell people and prove to people that it's true? And you rely on eyewitness testimony. So in the ancient world, how do you corroborate this story of the resurrection? Well, Richard Bauckham says that's why the writers include the names of people. Uh, that's why here Mark is including the names of Mary. and he's not, he's not saying any Mary. He's saying this specific Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And he's basically saying this. They were there. They saw it. And if you want to uh, corroborate the story of the risen uh, Jesus, go ask them. It's not only Mark who does it. Luke does it. Uh, when you have these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, he only names one disciple. He names Cleopas, and he leaves the other disciple unnamed. Why does he do that? Because people knew Cleopas, Cleopas and he's saying, go ask Cleopas. He encountered the risen Lord. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 because, you know, in Corinth, people doubted that Jesus actually rose from the dead. 
And so he names the people, and he says Jesus first appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive. Why does he say most of whom are still alive? Because he's saying, go ask them. People saw the risen Jesus. And even Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he talks about the resurrection, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And basically he's saying, I saw him. I touched him. I saw him eat. I saw his wounds. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen. Why did people believe in the resurrection? Why did people, at the end of the day, completely shatter their paradigms, reorient their lives, even risk death at the face of persecution to share this message of the gospel? It's not because they thought the story of the resurrection was a a nice metaphor or an inspirational story, but it's because they believed it to be true. They believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if that is something that you believe, your life can't be the same after it. If you actually believe it, then it makes all the difference in the world. And this leads to our second point. If the resurrection is true, what does it mean? And I would say in some ways, this is probably the more important question for us, is it not? If you look at the reaction of these two Marys, when they find out that the tomb is empty, they're not rejoicing and they're not saying, praise the Lord, he is risen. They're not celebrating here. They're they're actually pretty freaked out because the tomb is empty. And uh, I think they're freaked out because at this point they don't understand what that means. What does it mean that the tomb is empty? What does it mean that Jesus has risen? Again, there's too much to say about this, but let me just get to the core of it. What does it mean? It means hope. The resurrection means hope. And we often don't realize the importance of hope until the very moment we need it ourselves. But hope is so important. Hope, it it gives us meaning. Hope gives us strength to overcome those moments in life where we're experiencing so much trial and hardship. But you see, a lot of times our hope is not in the truth of the resurrection, but we put our hope in other things. We put our hope in this vision of life that we think we're going to have. And that vision can include things like successful career, nice family, nice house. I'm going to live until I'm 75 or 85. My family, everybody in my family, my parents will live until they're old age. And of course, that's what we hope for. But here's the thing about living in a broken world. Oftentimes that vision gets shattered. You see, death, death is the great interrupter of life. Death is the most sobering reality check. Death, according to the Bible, is a great enemy. You know, I don't see the the Sadiq family here today. I don't know if any of you saw the news today, but their hometown in Lahore, bomb went off, suicide bomber. Bunch of Christians celebrating Easter in a park. Tragic. Death interrupted their Easter gathering. You see, death, death strips us of worldly hopes. Does it not? 
Death says, you know, this is a life that you hoped you would get, that you dreamed you would get. But guess what? I'm going to interrupt that dream, and I'm going to strip away your hope of that life. In the Bible, death is an enemy. Death needs to be conquered. Death needs to be overcome. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is such good news for us. Because in his resurrection, sin and death are defeated. In his resurrection, we have a hope that cannot be taken away. Whether we're laid off from our jobs, whether we lose a loved one, whether we don't get what we ultimately think we're supposed to get, the resurrection gives us hope in those moments. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to go through a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and the writer talks a lot about death and the implications of death. And as he's wrestling with the finality of death, he says this, What's the point? What is the point? Does it really matter if, if you're wealthy or if you're poor? We're all going to die anyway. Does it really matter if we attain knowledge and wisdom? We're all going to die anyway. Does it really matter what we achieve in this life and with the toil of our hands? We're all going to die anyway. And he has this very cynical attitude towards life. And the reality of death can make us question the significance of it. If we're all going to die, then maybe the solution then is we should live life to its fullest. We should get the most pleasure that we can get out of this life Things like work, things like injustice, things like acquiring wisdom and knowledge, none of these things matter at the end of the day because death takes us all. Therefore, we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's the cynical attitude of the author of Ecclesiastes. And you know what? That's what existential philosophers will tell you. And you know what? I think New York is filled with people who actually believe in this. But here's what I think the book of Ecclesiastes shows us. That kind of philosophy and that kind of life ultimately leads to despair. Why? Because it's a life lacking in hope. It renders everything meaningless. So interesting to see how many people are seeing this. This past week, the comedian Gary Shandling, he passed away. And I was listening to an old interview that he did in 2011. And he said that he can, he can actually see it in America, that this materialistic money run is a dead run, and America is bottoming out. That this whole pursuit of pleasure thing is not working, and we're just in denial of it. Brad Pitt, he says something similar in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine, and he says, We are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And then the interviewer asks, Well then, what do you think should happen? And he says this, Hey man, I don't have the answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know. But I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. Uh, these people who are supposedly, they have it all. They have success. They have money. They have acclaim. 
even they see that these things in the end ultimately leads to a dead end. It's what people are putting their hope in. And I think the most harshest reality is when you get there, when you achieve it, and you just hear silence, and there's nothing. This is what Christianity says. Christianity says the resurrection is a foundation of our hope. It's not a dead end, but it is just the beginning. The resurrection is the remedy to sin. The resurrection is the remedy to death. The resurrection is the remedy to a self-centered, destructive, hedonistic life. The resurrection is the remedy to cynicism. And if Jesus rose from the dead, if it actually happened in history, then it changes everything. And it's something that we ought to reorient our lives around. It's something that ought to reshape us. It's something that gives us meaning and purpose. It's something that gives us hope outside of ourselves. It's something that gives us strength. And it is a hope that is based not on ourselves, but on our Lord Jesus Christ, on his victory from the death. And perhaps the Apostle Paul is thinking about Ecclesiastes when he ends his chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, and here's the key, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. There's meaning and purpose in it because of the resurrection. Let me end with this. Uh, I was reading an essay by Dorothy Sayers uh, called The Triumph of Easter. And she pointed out something really interesting, something I never thought about before regarding the character of Judas. And if you're unfamiliar with Judas, Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. And the reason Jesus uh, was ultimately handed over to die upon a cross and in talking about how Judas uh, ended his life, which he ended by hanging himself, she says this, And thereby Judas committed the final, the fatal, the most pitiful error of all. For he despaired of God and himself and never waited to see the resurrection. Had he done so, there would have been an encounter and an opportunity to leave invention bankrupt. But unhappily for himself, he did not. In this world, at any rate, he never saw the triumph of Christ fulfilled upon him and through him and in spite of him. He saw the dreadful payment made and never knew what victory had been purchased with the price. And that got me thinking. How was Judas and Peter, how were they so different? Judas betrayed Jesus, but in a sense, so did Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. What makes them different? I don't think it's because necessarily one is better than the other. Judas never saw the victory of Christ, but Peter did. Peter was able to experience forgiveness and restoration and victory, and it saved him from despair because he encountered the resurrected Christ. And the sad part about the life of Judas is he was never able to see it and experience it because despair overtook him and he ended his life. Now, everything falls within God's plan. 
But it's just interesting to think what would have happened to Judas if he didn't kill himself, if he lived, if he had encountered the resurrected Christ. And I do wonder if uh, he would have been transformed too. Who knows, right? But here's the thing. Knowing, seeing, believing, and putting our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. And it's a story that I encourage you to live your life around because it is our hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your victory. We thank you that you give us hope. We thank you that even as we remember such heartache and the death of dozens and dozens of people in Lahore, Pakistan, that in the resurrection, death is not the end of them, but that you promise life. We pray that you would help us to hold on to this promise, uh, to stand in it, to stand firm in a minute, that we would be immovable in our faith and that we would be a people with ultimate security and peace because you give it to us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.